Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know about our Facebook group, Enterprising Interlocutions. I created this group because I wanted to bring enterprising individuals to the people. I wanted to take it on the road. I wanted to have conversations with other Facebook users like the ones that we have on this show, ones that are insightful, ones that are looking into the various aspects of these episodes that we find fascinating, talking about the themes involved. I'm not against an occasional meme. That's okay. That can be on there. But it's really about having discussions and furthering the discussions, extending the conversations that we start on this program. And I really need your help to get it going. So go to facebook.com, search for Enterprising Interlocutions, and sign up to be part of the group and start chatting away with us today. Speaking of chatting, I'm chatting with Peter Byrne of trekversustrek.com today. I was glad to finally get a chance to talk to him. I've admired his writings on Star Trek for a while. He, The premise of his blog is that he takes two different episodes, sometimes three, and compares and contrasts them in a way that I wish I'd thought of, but he did it first, and he does it best. So check it out at trekversusvstrek.com. And in other news, we did it! Drop the banner. Mission accomplished. We finally talked about Enterprise on this show, and we were happy to do it. And because it's the first time we're talking about Enterprise, we talk about Enterprise as a series a little bit, in addition to talking about our episode today. So stick around for that. Learn about Enterprise if you don't know about it. I learned a lot. And enjoy it if you do. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hanley Figures is open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, a Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and if you're looking for a planet for the dogged remnants of humanity, but you need something affordable, something barely Minshara class, and something that will definitely not become an eel-infested wasteland in 100 years, look no further. This is home. This is City Alpha 5. I'm joined on this episode by Peter Aiden Byrne. Peter is a writer and essayist on pop culture properties, and he runs the blog Trek vs. Trek, where he examines the thematic and narrative similarities between episodes from two different Star Trek series. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Permission to come board granted. Today we'll be talking about Twilight, the eighth episode of the third season of Star Trek Enterprise. Enterprise! The show's creators believed that the very word was sufficient to conjure positive associations in the minds of Star Trek fans. That, or an affordable car rental service. But after only four years on the air, and with 98 episodes behind it, Enterprise shut its doors, leaving the airwaves bereft of a Star Trek series for the first time in 18 years, a drought that would continue until the debut of Star Trek Discovery in 2017. Enterprise's mission as a TV show was to return the franchise to its roots as a story about exploration and the human spirit. But the viewing public in general and fans specifically showed little faith, of the heart or otherwise, that the prequel series would earn its place in the pantheon of Trek history. But there are some, 
not many, but some, who see Enterprise as a flawed jewel that fills a key position in the history of the Trek franchise. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Peter, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? I think you could say I, I kind of grew up on um, the Next Generation and the original series, reruns of the original series. Sure. I would have been probably about uh, six or seven, I think, when the Next Generation uh, first started. So even at that age, I was I was kind of... Um, you know, vaguely aware that it was uh, that it was a big deal that Star Trek was was coming back to TV, and I had already um, been watching uh, reruns of the original series, and it's something that um, just kind of remember it being on. You know, um, uh, it's sort of part of the ambient noise of my childhood as <laughs> being on. Um, and, you know, I was, as a child, I was really drawn to you know the bright colors and and just there's something about it that you know kind of. Uh, hooked me about that even um, as a kid, probably not understanding a lot of what was going on. But um, right. the next generation is, you know, that's where I became a, you know, every week uh, viewer of, of Star Trek waiting for the new episode to come out each week. And yeah, I, I watched all the way through the next generation and and continued into Deep Space Nine and love Deep Space Nine. And, and I think that, you know, I, I say I grew up on Star Trek, but I, in a way, I think I kind of grew up with Star Trek as well, because I think that, um, you know, I, I think you could kind of say that Deep Space Nine is sort of like, in some ways, sort of like the adolescence of Star Trek, right? It's that oh, sure. I feel like I was kind of at the perfect age for it in some ways, even though, of course, it benefits from looking back at it now with, with adult eyes. But um, you know, that's Deep Space Nine is kind of the point where Star Trek kind of turns to its, you know, its parents, the original series and the next generation and kind of says, you know, maybe you adults don't always know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm imagining, uh, maybe, <laughs> yeah, DS9 is the angsty teen, you know, I didn't ask to be created. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the world doesn't work the way you, you taught me it works. You know? Right, I, right. I feel like there is an element of it to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on, on your blog, you say that you are attempting to make sense of what it means to be a maker and consumer of fiction at a time when fiction somehow feels more, both more frivolous and more necessary than ever. Why do you feel like fiction is currently both frivolous and necessary? Oh, well, yeah, I, um, I, I think that, you know, this, this is a time when, of course, um, you know, the, the, the news often seem, you know, what's going on in the world feels feels serious maybe too i'm you know i'm sure there are people for whom it has felt just that serious for a long time but for some you know relatively privileged individuals like myself it's kind of uh or maybe waking up to the fact that things are in the real world are a bit more serious than maybe we were aware of and so you can kind of feel sometimes like making and consuming art is you know what? What is it doing? What is it? What is it contributing? What is it accomplishing? But then at the same time, I think that art is the way that we understand. Or one of the ways, I think, one of the big ways that we understand the world around us. And I think you don't have to look too far into Star Trek fandom or any fandom of of any kind um, to see that that's part of what people want from it and get from it is is a way of processing the world around them. And sure. uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the, the paradox of it, that it, you know, it can seem like a frivolous thing to do sometimes, but I think we're often maybe not conscious of how 
uh, important it can be, even if it's important in kind of subtle ways. Um, I wonder then, by that thesis, if art in the 24th century is less necessary or less or less frivolous, <laughs> if they've got a lot of their social problems worked out, uh, has their art gotten more esoteric? You know, is it less of a social commentary? I'm sure there's still things mm-hmm. for them to um, to want to comment on in their society, but if they've got a lot of their problems worked out. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's one of those things that, um, um, you know, uh, that could certainly stand to be fleshed out more about the the Star Trek universe. Um, it's kind of striking, particularly with uh, the next generation, it's striking the way that, um, you know, so much of the art that's portrayed is kind of what we would consider kind of classical art from like a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. perspective, you know, uh, Picard listens to, um, to classical music, um, uh, you know, that we see them uh, performing Shakespeare plays and, and right. things like that, that it is interesting that we see very, very little of what art is actually being produced uh, at that time. Uh, I love the pl- uh, premise of your blog, Trek versus Trek, and it seems like a great way to refamiliarize yourself with some episodes that you maybe haven't seen in a while and to discover new expressions uh, of a lot of the themes that the franchise employs. Um, you did a uh, post um, fairly recently um, comparing The Defector and Duet, uh, two standout episodes of both TNG and uh, DS9 as well. And of course, we've talked about duet on this show. And I found that them to be, you know, very similar, as you point out, in the way that they look at the themes of, you know, patriotism and um, being a traitor, but a traitor for the right cause. And there's a lot of great uh, insights uh, in that article. That was definitely one of the, the highlights recently, I think, is comparing those episodes. Um, it was... Um... It was, I, I think there was originally going to be another episode I was going to compare Duet to, and then I kind of, it struck me that uh, that there were a lot of uh, similarities between it and and The Defector, and just, yeah, that, that idea of, you know, is is patriotism an idea that we can kind of salvage, you know, is it, is, can there be a, a positive side to it? Because that's some, one of the things I'm really struck by watching Duet is that this, this guy is a patriot, it's just his idea of patriotism is very, very different than what we, you know, have kind of come to associate patriotism with. Yeah, extremely. Have you ever found two episodes that you were really surprised to find that, that they were weirdly similar? I've definitely, um, as as I've been, um, so uh, Enterprise is, you know, a series that I, I didn't watch originally when it was airing, and I've been kind of, um, you know, uh, looking through it and, and um, trying to give it a chance and things like that. And um, that's a series where I am sometimes surprised um, that how um, how many similarities I've found between some of those episodes. Um, I know that I was a little bit. Um, I found an episode of Enterprise called Doctor's Orders, I believe, which mm-hmm. is um, the premise of that and an episode of Voyager uh, is almost identical. And the Enterprise episode is even directed by, um, I believe, the actress played um, Lana Torres on mm, okay. Twitter, I think. And yeah, that, that was one where I was shocked because it did, it really did feel like almost the exact same premise. Um, but th- there's been times where I've found um, similarities that, um, that I wasn't expecting as well. Um, uh, for instance, um, the episode we're going to talk about today, uh, Twilight, the, um, I had originally compared that to um, an episode from Voyager because of the, the aging and, and dementia side of it. But um, thinking about um, yesterday's Enterprise, I was kind of, uh, I hadn't, that's not a comparison I would have originally, um, you know, it, 
expected to make, but um, it was kind of interesting to to spot some similarities there. This is actually the first time that anybody's ever talked about Enterprise on this show, uh, which is exciting. Um, uh, and this is a pretty solid episode to start off with. Um, but besides you, only a handful of my guests have even suggested talking about Enterprise. And I think it's too bad. I mean, because there's a lot of good stuff to find in Enterprise. Um, at least what I've seen, to be honest, I have not seen the entire series. And so um, I find it hard to speak authoritatively about it. But I do like most of the things that I've seen. But maybe I've just seen the good stuff. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm in a bit of the same situation. I've I've been watching um, a lot more of it of it recently, but um, yes, I'm I'm um, basically a newcomer to Enterprise relatively over the last few years. Um, I had seen the odd episode of it when it was airing, I think, but I had had never connected with it really, and I've been mostly watching it in the context of the writing I'm doing about Star Trek now, just uh, trying to to you know. Uh, again, um, look at how different series are doing things differently. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that I I still, um, as I've watched more, um, it's a series like that can benefit from the fact that now that you can stream it and, and just pick episodes to watch, you don't have to watch every week, um, that you can single out uh, the, the good episodes or the episodes that people have recommended or the episodes that sound interesting. Um, and yeah, so it is a bit of a challenge to go back and watch something like that and um, know if you're how complete a picture you're getting of the series. But I think it's also interesting to find those kind of uh, hidden gems, which I kind of think this episode is, um, uh, to to see what the sort of what the potential of the series was, even if it didn't always live up to that. And of course, no, no series does. But <laughs> right. um, I, I think the, this episode is really interesting as a, as it, it encapsulates, I think, a lot of what was good about Enterprise and a lot of its potential and also um, some of its weaknesses and problems, I think, too. Well, let's talk about the episode. Uh, we're talking about, of course, the Enterprise episode Twilight today. It's the eighth episode of the third season of Star Trek Enterprise. It first aired on November 5th of 2003. The episode was written by Mike Sussman. Sussman wrote several episodes of Voyager as a freelancer before joining the writing staff as Voyager's story editor for its seventh season. He would continue with the Trek franchise as a staff writer and executive story editor on Enterprise before being promoted to co-producer of the show until the series' end in 2005. And he's contributed to or written over 30 scripts for Voyager and Enterprise combined and has worked as a writer and producer on several, several other shows uh, that are on currently or since the end of Enterprise. The episode was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, better known as the actor behind Tom Paris. McNeil directed four episodes of Star Trek Voyager and four episodes of Enterprise as well, including Countdown, which features the return of the Zindi superweapon that we see in this episode. The specific star date for this episode is unknown, but the action takes place in a variety of dates in an alternate timeline ranging from 2153 to 2165. Your assignment, Peter, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Twilight. Okay, I think I've got it in just under 25 words. Oh, great. I was a little challenging. I feel like the this episode, when you watch it, it unfolds fairly clearly, but it's kind of uh, tough to try and describe. It's a lot happening, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and kind of all over the place with flashbacks and whatnot. But um, yeah, so my best attempt is, yeah. in a future where Earth has been destroyed, 
Octopole takes care of Captain Archer, who has lost the ability to make new long-term memories. And then we just wait a few hours and didn't just say that again. Exactly. After I'd forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. And a lot of this uh, info comes from a 2010 interview that Sussman did with StarTrek.com and also from Sussman's commentary track from the Enterprise Season 3 Blu-ray episode of Twilight. Uh, This episode was originally pitched by Sussman to the producers of Voyager as a Voyager episode, and Sussman saw it initially as a love story between Janeway and Chakotay, but he couldn't get the minds behind Voyager to sign off on that idea. Uh, And as I mentioned before, in addition to being a writer for Star Trek, uh, Sussman was a longtime fan of Trek, and placing the last human colony in the episode on the planet of City Alpha 5 was a reference, of course, to uh, where Kirk marooned Khan and his augments at the end of the original series episode Space Seed. And, of course, Khan still lives there by the start of Wrath of Khan. And it's a particularly cruel joke on the part of Sussman, because assuming that nothing changes in this alternate timeline, uh, things are going to get real bad on SETI Alpha 5 somewhere around 2267, (laughs) as we see in Wrath of Khan. Uh, There's another Wrath of Khan reference in the episode. Uh, The Mutara system is mentioned. The Mutara Nebula is, of course, where the Enterprise and the Reliant clash in Wrath of Khan. Uh, The idea, the actual idea of the remainder of humanity uh, banding together in a ragtag fleet searching for a new home was also a reference of sorts. The rebooted Battlestar Galactica series on sci-fi was still a month from air in November of 2003, but Sussman had apparently seen a bootleg copy of the show's pilot script, and so he included that element in his script as an homage to the new show. Uh, If you think future Archer's hair has a decidedly Vulcan look to it, uh, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, The wig used on Scott Bakula in this episode in the future scenes was originally a test wig for Gary Graham's Ambassador Soval. So I guess we're supposed to get the idea that T'Pol has been cutting his hair all these years. (laughs) And uh, speaking of hair and makeup, some of the actors in the episode required different looks to be applied, uh, actually on the same day due to the shooting schedule, uh, including Breezy, the beagle that plays Porthos uh, from the second season of Enterprise On. He took over, of course, from uh, dog actor Prada. Uh, Gray was added to Breezy's fur for a scene set in the future, but the scene was later cut. And I know that humans have a somewhat longer lifespan in Star Trek, but another 12 years would have been pushing it, I think, for presumably what is the last beagle in the galaxy. Apparently, during the shooting of the show's previous episode, The Shipment, uh, director David Strayton, the director of that episode, showed up for work on the last day of shooting in a suit and tie, which was a little uncharacteristic for him. So Robert Duncan McNeil showed up for his last day on Twilight in the uniform that he wore as Tom Paris on Voyager hoping to cheer the cast and crew up after a week of working on this difficult episode and also trying to cheer them up after the sudden death of Jerry Fleck, an assistant director who had been with the franchise for 11 years. Uh, This episode, uh, a lot of people think it's very good. It was selected as number one, uh, the number one Enterprise episode by fans in a 2005 poll held by UPN prior to the release of the show's final six episodes. Uh, There's only a few featured guest stars in this episode. Gary Graham, of course, appears again as Ambassador Soval. He's probably best known for playing Detective Matthew Sykes in the Fox TV adaptation of Alien Nation and its subsequent TV films. Uh, That's another show that I discovered uh, as a kid and was like, wow, this is, uh, why didn't this go longer? I really like this show. Yeah, I don't think I ever watched that. Oh, really? No. Uh, It's an okay movie starring James Caan. And then it was adapted into an okay uh, Fox show. But it's, uh, you know, it's this premise of 
It's sort of like District 9, uh, only instead of bug people, it's just people with like weird bald heads. Oh. And they have to sort of integrate themselves into our society. And it's it's a metaphor for racism and immigrants and all that sort of thing. But it's it's kind of fun. Uh, Graham first appeared in Trek as the Ocampan Terrace in the Voyager episode Cold Fire. He would play Soval 11 times on Enterprise, and he would reprise the role in the fan production Prelude to Axanar. He also played the shape-shifting Ragnar in the fan productions Star Trek of Gods and Men and Star Trek Renegades. Brett Rickaby appears in the episode as Yerdrin Lek, the Euridian. Rickaby is a film and television actor with many small screen credits to his name. He has appeared recently on the Hulu series Castle Rock, and he made an appearance on The Orville in 2017. Finally, and also probably most curiously, uh, appearing in this episode as guard who gets punched in the face by Archer is Richard Anthony Crenna. And yes, he is the son of actor Richard Crenna. Richard Anthony got his start in television in the TV miniseries On Wings of Eagles, playing the son of Ross Perot, who was played by his father. He had a few recurring roles on TV after that on shows like Chicago Hope and Roswell. And this was his last TV role. He's still alive. He's just not on TV anymore. Well, let's talk about the episode itself, Twilight. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about Enterprise as a series. Um... As you said, you've kind of been getting into Enterprise um, a little more in the last couple of years. I don't know if you saw, there was a report maybe a year or two ago about how, I think, according to streaming figures on like Netflix uh, and so on, uh, Voyager is actually like the most watched show on Netflix. Like people are just going in and they're like streaming these old episodes. And I, I'm not sure if that's an effect of maybe people just having not seen it like when it was on because they were kind of falling away from the franchise and then going back now that they have an opportunity to. And I haven't looked, but I would guess that I bet Enterprise is probably up there as well. I bet a lot of people are going back now um, in their free time and with access to the episodes and trying to you know see what they might have missed or might have dismissed uh, when it was out originally. Yeah, I suspect that's true. I, I know that... Um... Uh, say you know earlier but even you know before I was watching um, those series as much as I do right now um, I know that um, that's something I've, I would often notice that um, in the you know the Netflix uh, suggestions of things that are trending now or things like that you of course you never know how reliable those those albums are and that but right, but right. I would notice often it was interesting that you'd see Voyager and Enterprise as opposed to um, the other Star Trek series that you know would be more widely recognized but I suspect it is for that reason reason that um, it that those series are benefiting from the fact that there's a uh, like a lower barrier to entry now so um, right. <laughs> you you know bef before if I I say I, I didn't watch Enterprise when it was airing if I wanted to go back and catch up on it you know maybe I would have had to buy the DVD set or something like that and for a show that I'm not sure I like you know of course that's um, that maybe I wouldn't do that but now I I suspect that is happening that a lot of people are going back to either finish watching series that they dropped off of, which is what happened to me with Voyager. I did watch part of Voyager when it was airing, and then mm. and then I, um, I did drop off uh, as well. That's kind of where I dropped off of being a weekly Star Trek viewer um, back when it was airing. And so that's definitely for me, you know, uh, seeing Voyager on, on Netflix is, um, you know, uh, a real chance to go back and and just kind of work my way through it and um, you know and see if I if uh, if I judged it unfairly. Right. Um, I, I would be really interested to to hear what people think who have been in, introduced to Enterprise that way. Um, I, I know that 
there there is a you know i think a pretty vocal group of people who are really into enterprise and i'm always kind of curious i tend to assume that that's mostly people who watched it when it aired but i i don't know i would be really um i would be fascinated to hear from someone who watched enterprise as their very first star trek if if such a person uh exists and i guess they, they must <laughs> of course. but of course but it yeah. just seems like a series that was so clearly made for people who had watched star trek before yeah. uh, I, I don't think the creative team behind it was really assuming that anyone would watch this who wasn't already familiar with Star Trek. So, Well, that was a concern, I know, in the development of the show. And I should just put in a note here. Uh, my co-host on our Discovery podcast, Discoverage, um, is of the age where Enterprise was the first thing that that was on when she was a kid. She's she's younger. Uh, and even so, uh, it's not her favorite, <laughs> but she is uh, much more familiar with it than I am. I know for me, and maybe this is true of other people, the decline of the VCR really hurt my uh, watching of shows like this as um, you get older and appointment TV becomes less of a, a, a possibility or a reality for you. And also just having... DVDs take over for VCRs, but not having a, a good home recording uh, sort of apparatus in place, other than, I suppose, um, TiVo, if you've got that service. If I missed something, it was just gone. And then I wasn't going to sink 35 bucks into like, uh, you know, a DVD with a couple episodes or a season or something like that. Right, exactly. There was sort of that there was that period of time in between um, uh, the, the basically the phasing out of, of VHS and then streaming coming in that yeah in between those those two things being available I think that's right I think it was it was a lot harder to go back and find something that you had missed or that you wanted to give a second chance right yeah the the, the ability to program a VCR is, is a lost is a lost skill mm -hmm. a lost art that I uh, <laughs> I fought hard to develop but I can't tell my grandkids about it um, <laughs> The series Enterprise was produced uh, initially at the request of the UPN network uh, and was, of course, created by Berman and Braga. Uh, and with Voyager coming to a close in 2001, uh, the fledgling network felt it needed another Trek series to compete with popular sci-fi that was on at the time, like X-Files, Stargate, and Roswell. And from what I understand, with Voyager ending and the TNG films ongoing, Berman and Braga felt that they couldn't set their new series in the future of Trek, and so they decided instead to create a series that would fill in some of the historical gaps of the Star Trek universe. And they also engineered a plot um, at the request of the studio, from what I understand, that would also explore the far future of the galaxy in the 31st century. So they're kind of doing a sequel slash prequel series, um, which is confusing. Um, even for new viewers, even for long-term viewers, it can be confusing. Uh, audience reaction to the show was strong initially, but it fell, up, fell off sharply after the first half of the first season. And the show ended its fourth season with a finale that saw 3.8 million viewers in the Nielsen rating. Uh, you can compare that to the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation, which had 31 million viewers and was number one in its time slot. And I believe this episode uh, had 3.2 million um, viewers in the Nielsen ratings. So not, not very high. Um, in the pre-sort of internet and streaming uh, TV age, um, that's like horrible. Today, I think you would be... You would go for 10 seasons if you, have, you could consistently keep 4 million viewers watching your show every week. Right. So a completely different landscape. Um, by the time it had left the air, I think audiences had had enough of this iteration of Trek. But I think time and distance have, you know, as we said, affected people's enjoyment of the show. I definitely have a friend or two who will stand up and really, really fight for its uh, worth as a series. 
And intellectually, I guess I can understand the desire to set it within the franchise's history. But as you said, like for new viewers, you know, it's such a continuity heavy show. I feel like you're setting yourself up for disaster. Although compared to Discovery, they've definitely left themselves more wiggle room in terms of what they can play with. I think Discovery skates on this sort of fine edge of it's in an area where there's still stories to be told, but now we're literally running up against things that have been produced previously. And so they're, they're playing a dangerous game with nostalgia. Yeah, I agree. It, it, um, uh, you know, it, it does. While I, um, you know, while I don't necessarily agree with, um, the, you know, the idea that they, they shouldn't have made a prequel, that, that there isn't some val- value inherent to, to doing prequels. I, I do agree that it's, you know, when, when you do a prequel, it's um, you, uh, you would hope that you'd be able to sort of justify why it's, why it's taking place, where and when it's taking place. And I think Discovery, yeah, does uh, walk a bit of a thin line with that. As, yeah. as much as I, 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 I enjoy watching it, I enjoy watching them walk that line, but, uh, you know, I, I think they, it was it was bound to come up against some of the criticism that it has. Something I find ironic is um, all of the or much of the serialization that you see in early in DS9 and some in Voyager, you know, the whole premise of Voyager, like we got to get back home. Uh, the, the, the serialization that the writers tried to add was always kind of shot down by Berman as a producer and Braga as a head writer. And after years of discouraging Trek writers from creating serialized storylines, suddenly we get Enterprise and there's like heavy serialized elements. Um, you know, there's the entire third season is all about, of course, the their journey through the Delphic Expanse and, and the Zindi, which, you know, let's face it, I mean, probably hurt the show's casual appeal ultimately. But now <laughs> in our totally different landscape of streaming and on-demand TV, if you don't start at the beginning, the very beginning of Discovery, you've got no idea what's going on. Like the, the TV landscape has totally changed in the last 15 right. years. Yeah, we've so um, we've so completely jettisoned that idea of um, anyone should be able to start watching this series on any episode. Yeah, which obviously you know the original series and next the next generation very much adhere to that. You could you could watch those series completely out of order. You could um, you know uh, use a randomizer to tell you which episode to watch next, and the series would make just as much sense. I think. Yeah, <laughs> for, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions, but for the most part. And there's even the device where the guy comes in at the beginning and goes, I'm a captain, here's where we are, this is what we're doing. Like they're even it's even built to help you figure out what's going on. It is, and that's that's something that's so striking about uh, about going back and watching those series now is is uh, it how completely television is I guess not all television. There there are still things like police procedurals and that 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 do probably mostly stick to that uh, to that formula but most most other drama i think seems to have completely given up on that or at least the dramas i watch again you, you never know maybe i'm i'm uh, generalizing a bit too much yeah there was a lot of shakeup in the writing staff early on on enterprise um almost all of the writers in the series were fired by braga um after the first season had completed with the exception of uh, chris black uh, who would go on to um, be a co-executive producer of the show. Uh, and I think they kept uh, John Sheban as well, who was a, a former X-Files writer. And if you look around in interviews, you find a lot of interesting commentary by the people who were making the show at that time. Uh, Mike Sussman has talked about the purges uh, of everybody getting you know, eliminated after the first season and about how Black was like the only guy to survive the purges. 
And there was a similar situation at the start of TNG's first season um, where nearly everybody was fired or quit. And in that case, I think it was a function mainly of people disagreeing with how the show was run. Um, and these are legendary people, you know, DC Fontana, David Gerald, Tracy Torme. You know, they're not getting along with Roddenberry and Berman. But in that case, the show, you know, it found its voice thanks in large part to the writers that came to establish themselves after that, like Michael Piller, Ron Moore, Renee Echevarria, and so on. You know, but in the case of Enterprise, you replace these people with new writers, some of them standouts like Mike Sussman, but it's still Berman and Braga at the helm, and they're their hands are in it every day. Like they are there writing scripts, their names are on scripts. Like the creative direction is is theirs and theirs alone. Right. So I don't mean to place it all on them as like they're the reason that it didn't succeed, but you have to imagine that you've got films going on, you know, they've I mean, they must have been people talk about like how fans were burned out. I think they were burned out. Like they had yeah. just done this for so long and they had so much riding on them and by continuing to be in control and not just, you know, executive producing and standing back, I think they were setting themselves up for, for burnout. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I, I think it's, it's really interesting to think of that in, um, you know, the, the fact that this was, you know, uh, like you said, consistently their, their vision. Um, it's interesting to note how one of the, things that's so striking to me about Enterprise is the way that it seems to be going in a million different directions at once. Uh, It seems to be just so consistently just throwing things at the wall and hoping they stick, yeah. um, which is really interesting given that you'd, you'd see that and kind of think, oh, well, maybe the creative uh, team behind it, of course, the creative team was changing a lot, but the, the you know, the vision behind it was was coming from the same people all the way through. And so, I yeah, I, I agree that maybe that does show a bit of burnout then, that it's kind of they, they had maybe been at it for so long that they... Um, couldn't kind of commit to one direction and just trust that that direction was, you know, that they were heading in the right, uh, in the right direction. Um, Because it is, it's even just, you know, comparing the third and fourth seasons, the the way that they take almost the exact opposite approach, even just in terms of their formats, that the third season is almost completely serialized, one long story. And then the fourth season is a series of two or three part, um, uh, like kind of basically made for TV movies that were divided yeah. up into right. episodes. And I know from what I've read, I think uh, a lot of the rationale for that was probably um, fairly, you know, it was on the, the production side of things. It was that they could um, kind of justify um, higher budgets uh, if they could film it all as basically one thing and then just split it up into uh, into individual episodes. Um, but it's also a really interesting approach that they took. And um, so I, I think that this, you know, throwing things at the wall um, tendency that they had did produce some some interesting results. But um, yeah, no, it's just it's so striking that they they were like, OK, well, we'll try full serialization and then we'll try the exact opposite. <laughs> right. The, the next season. Yeah, it, it, it is so funny that that was all coming from the same people. Yeah, I think a lot of their plans were sort of sabotaged or nixed by the studio as well, who was apparently um, really interfering a lot. Apparently, they had planned to make the events of Broken Bow or at least the sort of overarching thing where we take this guy to uh to Kronos um that they wanted that to be the whole first season 
and um, kind of in the way that like the third season is serialized and the studio is like, no, no, you can't do that. Just put that in the pilot. And of course, the increased amount of sex and skin in the show were encouraged by the studio because this is the early 2000s. You know, this is the network of Smackdown and Shasta Big Nasty. So, you know, Trek's hanging with a tough crowd here. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned the fourth season. It's uh, at that point, um, Braga had stepped down as showrunner and Manny Cotto stepped in to be the showrunner. And from what I understand, he wanted to make good on the promise of a show that's set at the dawn of the Federation, you know, incorporating a lot of the elements of the original series, um, us seeing it develop. Uh, he was a fan of the original series as a kid. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the third season, this is when we see the show change from Enterprise to Star Trek Enterprise, because I think the studio was like, well, where are the fans? Let's let's get the get the fans back here. That, too, is, again, is such an example of it going in different directions at once, like why you would uh, it's, it's kind of mind boggling why the the network would have a star trek show presumably you know they want people to watch it who've watched star trek show before but then take yeah. star trek out of the title yeah and have a rod stewart song yeah exactly <laughs> yes yeah then there's that yeah uh things weren't going well in june of 2004 there was actually a huge turnover in staff at paramount and upn was purchased by cbs so that was pretty much it the writing was on the wall at that point and going back to uh, us originally talking about art being frivolous and necessary. Um, Enterprise debuted, of course, just weeks after 9-11 in 2001. And you have to wonder how that shaped the outlook of the show. I think it's often true that in times of turmoil, entertainment with the theme of nostalgia seems to resonate with audiences. So the desire to create a series that evokes like the spirit of the original series is understandable. But I think what, what gets in the way of that, and it's something that Discovery is navigating as well, is that it's hard it's almost impossible even to create something unique and satisfying when you're constantly trying to capture the spirit of something else. The first time I tried to watch Enterprise, I was taken aback by how different it felt. Like, God, Archer is such a jerk sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like when Picard is pleading with some godlike alien that, you know, we're not the savages we were. It's like, well, don't show them Archer stabbing somebody with his Zephyr Cochran statue. That would be bad. <laughs> but when you think about it separately and over the years as I've tried to go back to it, I've stopped comparing it with older series, and I, I think I get more of what they're trying to accomplish. Like, just watching this episode, I was really focused on the line by T'Pol where she talks about, you know, we've held them back, and maybe they could have been more prepared if we had trusted them. And I feel like, yeah, Vulcans spend so much time screwing with humans, I'd, I'd want to punch some people, too. <laughs> I agree. I, I think that, um, again, one of the things I like about this episode is it does seem to be taking some of the things that Enterprise had been trying to do and um, uh, executing them in a bit of a more nuanced and kind of subtle way. I think that um, the um, in, you know, at the very beginning of Enterprise, um, the, the way that Archer sort of reacts to um, to the Vulcans um, not sharing all of their technology immediately to enable humans to go out into space. Um, I respond really negatively to that. Just the, his his attitude to me seems so entitled. Like, why, why, why would the Vulcans share all of their technology with you right from right. the get-go? That seems like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, but in this episode, I think when when to Paul, maybe it's important that it is to Paul making this case rather than Archer. But when yeah, when she is making that case that maybe this wouldn't have happened, maybe we could have helped them um, uh, in, instead of just sort of babying them, uh, if if that's the way you look at it. But instead of just protecting them, that we could have kind of enabled their their um, flight out into space. Um, I think this is a much 
yeah, a much more nuanced way of approaching that idea of um, what of the relationship between humans and Vulcans. Yeah, and the more prequel uh, series they make, and who knows, <laughs> they're probably going to, I mean, they're making a Jojo uh, series, and uh, who knows when the uh, Starfleet Academy series will be made, and the Lower Decks animated series. But anyway, the more prequel series they make, the more I feel like, um, intentional or not on their part, and I hope it is, we really start to see a progression of the way humanity kind of comports itself from the 22nd century to the 23rd to the 24th. You know, some of the criticisms I see about uh, Discovery is that like, oh, you know, they wouldn't act like that. And and uh, Kirk would never um, Kirk would never put a bomb in the center of Kronos, you know, and, and like blow it up. And if you think about it in terms of humanity's sort of kind of working things out, they're eventually evolving into the kind of person who listens to classical music and does Shakespeare, you know, and it's and just having a good time on the Enterprise D, uh, it, it starts to become a little more clear. Uh, although, just to say, I don't know, if Kirk was in that situation and they were at War of the Klingons, maybe he'd push the button and feel bad about it later? Yeah, no, I'm, I, exactly. I'm not so sure I agree. Yeah, I, I think that Kirk was certainly willing to do some, uh, you know, some things that would be frowned upon uh, if he thought it was necessary. Yeah. yeah. Um, We're not all, yeah, it's uh, less flute playing and more hard decisions from uh, people who are on earlier episodes. Um, well, okay, let, let's stop talking about Enterprise as a whole and start talking about Twilight specifically. Uh, this is a time travel episode, of course, a well-worn trope in Star Trek. Um, something that I think that this episode does really well is that it uses time travel um, the right way, or at least in a, in a real productive way, in my opinion. Um, we, we see the far future, and the relationships between our characters evolve. And it, they do it in ways that tell us a lot about the characters, and they show us the possible potential for those characters and their relationships. And then it gets reset, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, we also get a setup for the stakes in the season. This is relatively early in the season. And we see what you know could happen uh, in a way that doesn't have to change the way the show goes. But we know how important it is. It won't just be Florida that gets lit up. You know, It'll be the entire Earth. And then at the end of it, um, it goes back to the way it was. And nobody remembers it. And I think that's really great because we as an audience have that, you know, that dramatic irony, that information, but our characters are still just kind of just plugging along. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that um, one of the things that um, that I really like about this episode is the way that um, it's, you know, it takes the, the, the classic approach of of using a sort of a science fiction allegory for um, you know for a real world issue for um, you know dementia in this case and yeah. just sort of the process of aging um, and the way that relationships um, you know evolve um, as people age and as their circumstances change too um, and I, I think it uses those um, it uses that balance between the sci-fi side of things with the time travel and the um, the real world issue that's that it's an allegory for. It uses it to do several different things at the same time, which I think is is pretty impressive about the episode. Um, I like that it um, uh, in in some ways, you know that like you said, the um, the destruction of Earth foreshadows for us what the stakes are going forward um that this is it's not just that season three the the zindi storyline is not just about um about enterprise you know avenging what happened already but that this is what will happen if um if they're not able to somehow resolve things with the zindi um and also i, I think the um you know it, it uses that um 
uh, it uses uh, the caregiver um, uh, patient relationship uh, between Tapole and Archer to uh, advance their dynamic and their relationship in interesting ways. And it even, I mean, and this is maybe a bit of a stretch, but I think it even uses um, the idea of of you know the twilight years of someone's sort of uh, de declining years as as a bit of a metaphor going back to um, to the Zindi attack and the way that it's it you know obviously stands in for us um, as as an allegory for the 9/11 attacks that you know maybe this the, the this was a moment of sort of existential crisis both for um, for the for humanity in the show and you know maybe for us in the real world as well that this is a moment you know are are we are we going to be able to move past this are we going to be able to advance further or are we just kind of stuck in this moment stuck reacting to this moment forever okay. yeah yeah i i kind of wonder if they maybe should have gone a couple years farther than they did. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how they settled on 12 specifically, but, uh, yeah. you know, suddenly uh, Trip's got like liver spots and it's like, well, it's 12 years. <laughs> I think yeah. if, you, yeah. if you met uh, Connor Trenier, he, he probably looks pretty much the same. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of, and I might be making more uh, pop culture comparisons than usual this episode because you're the Trek versus Trek guy, but it reminds me of an episode of Farscape called The Locket. Um, I don't know. Have you ever seen Farscape? Uh, only a little bit. I've never got Again, I, that's a series I would like to watch. I haven't gotten around to it, but I'm yeah. not familiar with the episode. No. I definitely recommend it. But just to give a broad overview, um, in this episode, the, the characters are, you know, they're on a spacefaring ship. They go down to this planet where time is moving faster. It's like the reverse of the water planet in Interstellar or the planet in Blink of an Eye in Voyager. And they live out their whole lives on this planet um, to essentially um, senescence and death. And it's, it's like the dynamics between the characters totally change. And there's a pair of characters who are at this point in the show, it seems like, you know, it's a will they, won't they? And they, to they totally do. You know, it's mm -hmm. like in this future, we see all their relationships hit like an end point. Mm -hmm. And then they find a way to change the past and everything kind of rewinds and it never happens, but it keeps the momentum of the attraction and the connection between the romantic leads going. Like they almost got together, you know, maybe, maybe soon in the, in the show, they, they could still. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that's really compelling to me about um, in, in this episode about the dynamic between T'Pol and Archer is that mm -hmm. uh, we, we see that things have advanced. We see their relationship has changed, but the, the exact details of that, of course, are always left a little bit, um, unclear and i think that that really works too and uh like you said it kind of it does um foreshadow you know what uh what development might happen between them in the future it kind of leaves leaves things open for further maybe different development uh between uh, in their relationship uh, yeah. in the series going on but even just um in this uh this future timeline um i really like that they you know for example she says she says to him of course you know in the years since your accident, our relationship has evolved. And he says something to the effect of evolved how far. And I think we just cut away from that. Um, we don't actually right. see if she answers it and if she does, how she answers it. Um, and there's um, a scene where um, Phlox asks her if she has told Archer that she has feelings for him. And 
she doesn't answer and i think it's we would assume that her lack of an answer probably means no but i like that the the setup of the premise means that maybe she has told him before and he just wouldn't remember it, of it right. right so yeah i like that they i think watching that scene i think they do mean it to be that she hasn't but i think it is left ambiguous and i really like that i think you know uh that amb- ambiguity really helps. And I think it's something that, again, is um, uh, that sometimes can be missing from some of these uh, character dynamics in this series as a whole. And I think that that's something I really like here is that the dynamics between these characters are are, are nuanced and things are left a little bit ambiguous in a way that seems meaningful. Yeah, my only complaint, and I think that they did that um really well um just, just like showing the way that he's he forgets everything every day and this is actually based or I, I don't know there is a real life case uh that is similar to this um about a guy named um henry Molayson, uh who had severe epilepsy and he would frequently experience these tonic clonic or, or these grand mal seizures and he couldn't hold a job and he was miserable and this is in the mid 50s his doctor suggested that he have a um bilateral medial temporal lobectomy, meaning that they essentially cut out most of both of his temporal lobes to prevent seizures. And it worked on the seizures, but it left him with complete enterograde amnesia. This is amnesia where you're unable to form new memories as opposed to retrograde amnesia where you lose your previous memories. And, you know, that sucked for him. He was basically institutionalized for the rest of his life. But he lived into his 80s and with continued study of him, and he participated in a lot of like you know, uh, studies of his condition, um, his condition provided a wealth of information about how memories are formed and retained mm-hmm. and what structures in the brain are used in memory. So something good came out of it, um, out of that tragedy. And my only problem with how they portray his, his illness is I know that we've got a sci-fi show to get to, but I think they could have gone a little further in trying to show like the effects on Archer and his relationships mm-hmm. um, when he's talking to people who he's become really a burden to, you know, who have to deal with this problem. And I thought they could have done a little more to show that he's doing the same thing over and over. There are some good scenes where, you know, he brings up like, for instance, hey, I've got these new specs and Tripp's mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, um, you gave those to me already. And the, the, the suggestion is maybe he's given them to him like three or four times. <laughs> like this is... Exactly. It, like are his actions deterministic just because he's simply being reset every day? I thought they could have done a little more, uh, you know, oh boy, here we go again from the people that he deals with. But um, there there are some really nice spe- specific moments, though. Like I really like the moment where he re- leaves the reception that they're having for him on Enterprise early. And T'Pol asks him why, and he's like, I just saw those people. Like, it's not really a party for me. Like, I, I literally just saw those people. But, of course, it's been 12 years. But at that point in the episode, like, I had kind of forgotten about his problem at that point. So they did it well. I just wanted – I wanted even more of that that weird dynamic. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that, too. Um, I, I think they, they do have certain moments that get that across really well, that uh, when he leaves the banquet, that's a really good example of that. And again, um, uh, like you, I, I haven't always had the easiest time uh, sort of empathizing with Archer, and there are moments here where I really do. Yeah. Uh, like that, um, the uh, again, when he makes that suggestion uh, to Trip and to Paul, and just again, they, they play that, I think, really, really subtly. You know, uh, Trip and to Paul are, are, you know, trying to be kind of gentle, but also um, 
not they're also trying to be forthright with him um they're yeah. not they're not sugarcoating things but they're trying to be uh gentle and and trip i think says you know but those those suggestions you made great. worked out yeah. great yeah. <laughs> right. we already did it and it worked out great um but um you you feel for everyone in those situations and i think that's a real strength of the episode the the scenes um um, certainly when, when T'Pol is filling him in and, um, you know, when he first, uh, wakes up as, as an older man and, um, the, the interactions between him and T'Pol, um, you, you see it from everyone's perspective. You see how hard this is, uh, for everyone you get. I think, um, they do a really good job of showing how T'Pol is sort of going through, going through the motions, but not in a, not, not, not going through the motions in the sense of being, you know, tired of this, but that this is, you know, probably a lot of this, maybe all of this she has said, who knows how many times before. I think you really get a sense of that, um, of of um, everyone, this being uncomfortable for everyone and everyone trying kind of their best and having understandable reactions to things. I agree that I think... Um, they could have maybe kept us a little bit more in um, the the point of view in certain parts of the episode is maybe not where it needs to be to um, kind of uh, g- give us maybe a little bit more of of that that reality of this situation. I think that um, the it's a little bit tricky, I guess, because the flashbacks maybe are necessary to get the story across to us. They're part of the narrative, but having, especially having flashbacks where we actually see things from Archer's point of view does kind of dilute things a little bit, I think, because yeah. it uh, they do such a good job at the beginning of the episode, putting us in Archer's shoes of feeling so um, disoriented where he wakes up and he's told that it's the captain's orders that he can't leave his, his quarters. Punch Richard Krenna's kid. Yeah. yeah. And, and then he sees the earth explode, which is, you know, yeah, right. disorienting <laughs> thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, so they do a really good job of putting us into his shoes. And then those scenes uh, between him and T'Pol and, and Trip. um, Again, they get that across really well, but um, having us, you know, the, the ridiculous uh, flashback scene where he fights as Indy and, like you said, I think impales him with a statue. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, I, I, I don't know how to pull flashback included that, of course, but um, things like that did kind of, uh, yeah, pull, pull me out of Oh, yeah, because he wouldn't even rem- remember that, yeah. Yeah. I, the only way to really do this episode, though, is to is to stick to his viewpoint as much as you can, really, to just get that sense of disillusionment or uh, disorientation, like you said. I, maybe one more reset, though, would have might have driven it home. You know, the episode is pretty economical in its storytelling, and it all takes place, you know, on this one big day. Um, that's do or die for the rest of humanity. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Maybe it could take two days you know we get all the info but day turns to night turns to day again and we see that archer's like what i've got vulcan here what's going on (laughs) just seeing how how much it holds him back because it's kind of scary to see archer look so pathetic right right yeah and i i think they they could have yeah even even though it is um it is quite uncomfortable to see him in the in the position that he's in to see him as sort of as powerless and he as powerless as he understands himself to be i mean that's uh, again part of what makes me empathize with him is that you know you can see how how hard this is for him um yeah. 
But even though that is hard, I think they could have leaned into that a little bit harder. They could have, um, or and even gotten across to us, like like you said, I think having having him maybe near the end of the episode, having his, uh, we don't know what the rules are, of course, how long this window <laughs> yeah. is. And, you yeah. know, I understand that's, that's storytelling stuff. Um, but yeah. uh, it mainly it, seems like he, you know, he goes to sleep and, and wakes up and he's, and it sort of resets. You kind of expect right. I Got You Babe to be playing every time he wakes up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's it's implied, you know, when when Tapol says like you're you're up early today or something like that, it's it seems like it's implied that yes, this is sort of a once a day thing, but uh, right, but, right. It would suck if they're running down to engineering to to create the implosion and then halfway through he's like, "What where am I? What are we doing again?" Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would have I guess it would have interrupted the flow of the the action sequences a little bit, but yeah. and maybe it would have been a bit unintentionally funny possibly as well, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think it would like like you said there's there comes a point in the episode where you kind of forget that this is happening to him you kind of forget that the whole problem here is that he can't um sustain those memories and yeah. so yeah it would have been kind of nice to to see that even though i i understand from a storytelling point of view why they didn't but. yeah there it's a very uh, groundhog day-ish type of thing or like a like a edge of tomorrow-ish kind of thing only flipped of course you know he's the one who's losing all the information as uh, things sort of reset for him right. there's there's a similarity here to more than a few episodes of other trek series that use time travel and i think for modern trek probably more than anything i think yesterday's enterprise got trek started on the whole let's kill ourselves to reset this crap sack universe we're in like hmm. before yesterday's enterprise you'd have kirk you know, he needs to sacrifice Edith Keeler to keep the world the way it's supposed to be, or Picard has to shoot and kill his double so the Enterprise can break out of a time loop. But after yesterday's Enterprise, you get episodes like All Good Things, where they have to blow up three Enterprises <laughs> to save the universe, or you've got... Um, DS9's Children of Time, where like thousands of descendants of the Defiance crew right. have to sacrifice themselves, uh, or The Visitor, where Jake kills himself to save his right. dad, or the, I'm sure, many, many episodes of Voyager where horrible time travel things happen, like Endgame <laughs> for one. Yeah, no, it is, um, it seems like that, um, uh, whether whether it's time travel or whether it's um, something like the Mirror Universe, um, that things really progress as you got into the next generation and, and Deep Space Nine, you know, the way that Deep Space Nine handled uh, the Mirror Universe, where it started turning its Mirror Universe episodes into an excuse to kill off somewhat the Mirror <laughs> version of someone from the main cast yeah. or, or supporting cast or just basically anyone they could kill off um, as, as those episodes went on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then the um, uh, with with the time travel premise as well. Exactly, we started to see, um, you know, uh, uh, more and more. It seemed to become accepted that uh, that these these sort of uh, bizarro world stories would become kind of an excuse to uh, to kill off some main characters without uh, w without ongoing consequences. But um, you know, I think yeah. done at its best, it it did have sort of emotional consequences in the episode. Right. But right, uh, yeah. Yeah, it isn't just laying waste to the cast for for a quick cheap thrill. Um, mm. you, you know, you got the ending of this episode where you know as soon as Flox says you know that like an implode, uh, what is it like a, a neutrino implosion or something would fix the problem, right. you're thinking, well, countdown to some kind of <laughs> you know implosion, uh, and they're in engineering, which. The Enterprise engineering set, I have to say, is a great setting for a last stand phaser battle. You know, it's like the Alamo. And they're fighting off the Zindi, and there's kind of like a Saving Private Ryan thing to it as well. Like, 
at some point we're out of options, so we have to blow the bridge. You know, don't let them kill us before we can kill us. Right. Which is kind of a, another uh, Wrath of Khan reference, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got to hit a button to to explode before he, yeah. you know, expires. Yeah, I had actually wondered about that. That's something um, uh, just this last time that I rewatched it, that's something that I don't think I had noticed before. And I wondered if it was just me, but there's, um, I believe, the scene where Archer finally hits the button to, you know, to cause the explosion. He's been shot and he kind of pulls himself up on the console and that shot really reminds me of the last time that you see Khan in Wrath of Khan where he's he's kind of all scarred up and and right, battle-worn yeah. and he really you know uh, Ricardo Montalban of course does such a great job of playing that he you know dramatically pulls himself up and and hits that button <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if Archer's movements there were a deliberate you know just because they've already introduced SETI Alpha 5 it just seemed you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know you're all they've already um, put your mind in that place I wondered if that was intentional or not somebody Sussman or somebody probably had to be talked out of like putting the extra gooey uh, <laughs> thing on his face you know like he gets shot in the face or something like that yeah, to mirror having him, that having him tell the Zindi from hell's heart I stab yeah, him or whatever yeah. <laughs> uh, you know uh, totally nitpicky question speaking of getting shot in the face if the going got really rough why didn't they just shoot Archer in the head with that wouldn't that have destroyed the parasites and then you know erased everything like the second just using the lot just being logical like to pull wood the second they get to enterprise uh, or the engineering uh area and they see that the chamber that for the uh procedure is broken why not just like well i'll see you see you in the past just pull out your phaser and shoot him in the head Dark. Right. If if the uh, if if the the parasites dying in whatever way would would reverse time again. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. they're just they would still be extant and just floating in space, like above his the stump of his neck. Yeah. Um, but dark. Uh, I did. I think that the interspatial parasites um, are a really fun device in the show, and it's a really creative solution. And I mean, we'll never see them again. But I don't think it would be a bad thing if we did. Um, just the idea of destroying them in the future means that they never existed in our past. There's a lot of ways that you could have done this and still use time travel. You could easily have had Archer sidelined by some other malady. I mean, just just garden variety brain damage from getting hit, you know, by the shock wave. Which, by the way, the effects in the episode are great. I love when the anomaly goes to the ship and the entire deck plating like ripples as uh, you know space time is being uh, compressed but you could have had a time loop or some kind of phenomenon that reverses time to get them out of it at the end but the parasites is a really cool idea yeah yeah i i, I like um, um i i'm like that they they take it in a more medical direction with the parasites uh, yeah, right. again probably kind of tying back to to real world conditions um like like alzheimer's and that but you know, of course different different from that but again viewing it through a medical lens rather than uh just uh yeah going through a time loop or or something like that the the anomalies are something that i think is a really interesting part of that whole season of discovery there's um there's another episode where um archer is in it you see archer in his quarters and he's um kind of absent-mindedly bouncing i think a basketball or something off of the wall next to him and um the 
uh, on one bounce, the ball doesn't return, and he looks over, and it has just phased into the wall. Um, <laughs> and that's how he. And then he he uh, he um, gets in contact with the bridge and asks if something has happened. But um, those uh, the way that those anomalies were done uh, is is really interesting. I think throughout throughout that whole season. And um, I yeah I, I like the way that this episode um, approached that you know the the device that it used to to set the the plot in motion. I like that. Um, uh, that it's time travel when it didn't have to be. Um, partly because it's interesting to see a time travel storyline that involves changing the past, where there's no um, there's no philosophical talk at all about whether it's right for them to change the past by getting rid of Archer's parasites. Um, right. They don't. That that's something that you know in most of the time in Star Trek when there's talk of something like that, like in yesterday's Enterprise, there's, of course, a uh, debate about um, about whether or not to send the Enterprise-C crew back and set the timeline back to what it was. Um, right. and, and even in that episode, they, they, of course, go through sort of time travel ethics, but at the end, it is presented as a bit more of a pragmatic choice on Picard's uh, part to some extent. He, he, he uh, tells the captain of the Enterprise-C that the war is actually really going badly, and and so he actually kind of sees this as a strategic move, uh, right. as well as not. Yeah, we're, not... we're screwed. <laughs> like this is the worst universe yeah. to live in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in a way that's very like that's the Picard of that of that timeline. I feel like that's not something you would hear from from the Picard that we're used to. Um, yeah. But but in Twilight, you there there is it's kind of striking that there's no discussion of it at all this is going to change the timeline but it's just it's just assumed that a timeline where the zindi have destroyed earth is is the wrong timeline um even yeah, though it, it isn't really i mean i would assume this is the prime timeline i guess however that works but. yeah well in an off, alternate offshoot i guess the script for um for yesterday's enterprise is is really great and it's really economical in that they get all of that done and there's time for a romance between yar and and shooter mcgavin but (laughs) this script i think where we lose it is just the fact that they have to show well done but they have to show so many you know sort of side things and flashbacks and and you know the progression of how we get to there and then we leave out because at some point Flox has to have realized the nature of the parasites or or the apprehension of that idea comes so fast at the end of the episode where they go, wait a minute, these have never, um, they're, they're gone from the old x-rays. So here's this great idea. We don't have time to discuss it in committee. And it becomes, well, we're going to do this because, you know, they turn the enterprise into a pop top, like the bridge is gone. Right, right. Yeah, there there are elements of the episode that make me wonder um, if if there was additional material that either was cut from the script or maybe filmed and then cut. But um, there there are certain kind of uh, kind of loose threads in the episode that make me wonder if there was something else that was going to happen um, uh, with with Flux. Again, there's the um, the Euridian trader um, talks about having been <laughs> hired. They, they make a really specific point of saying that he was hired to follow Flux, um, and then it's never real. Like, it just seems a little funny that. 
that they're so specific about that and then that's never really um expanded on which i i understand he was you know presumably the the zindi uh wanted were going to use flocks as a way of finding the humans but um yeah. it, i just get the sense there are bits that seem like i'm not sure why this is here when something else could have been um and it i wonder strange. if they had to cut it for time um I, and from a tv production standpoint like you have to cast an entirely new actor to play that role and then set up that scene that as we said uh, about the viewpoint takes place outside of Archer's viewpoint all to have you know trip and uh and read play uh you know loud cop louder cop with this rat guy so yeah yeah, that does seem like something that they just go oh there's a tracker on a ship or or something like that exactly and 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 not just uh, not just cast an actor but put him into the uh into that iridian uh makeup and prosthetics as well which um again that seems like such a specific choice that exactly i'm i i'd be curious to know what what else was was supposed to be there besides the iridian just being kind of a bit of fan service that people would would recognize that but um in my research i have not found anything to answer that question i do know that i believe that the Euridians are first seen uh, in a TNG episode with Worf, I think, right? Where James Cromwell plays one. Right. Um, and so this is the first, technically this is the first contact with Euridians in this alternate timeline. Right. Uh, another fun fact, real quick, uh, Enterprise is the only series in continuity with the now defunct Kelvin movieverse, because Star Trek contains a reference, uh, Star Trek 2009 contains a reference to Admiral Archer, and in Into Darkness, um, there is a model of the NX-01 in Admiral Marcus's office. Oh, really? I, I, I don't know if I've noticed that. So, yeah, technically that's, I mean, if you're going by the movie timeline, another alternate timeline, uh, Enterprise is the only show that actually took place. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and that's something, um, you know, not, not, not to go back to Discovery again, but that's, I feel like <laughs> there has been more, more references to Enterprise in Discovery than I would have expected. And I mean, I guess, mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, chrono- or in terms of the, the fictional chronology, that uh, Enterprise is the only series taking place, uh, the only TV series taking place before um, uh, Discovery. But yeah, it, it has been interesting to see, you know, the, with um, uh, there are quite a few elements that are just kind of slipped in as, as little, uh, little details. But um, yeah, I, I'm assuming that uh, at least some of the people working on Discovery are probably fans of, of Enterprise based, based on that. Well, as we uh, wind up here, I wanted to get your last impressions. Uh, was there a scene or a moment or a character that stood out specifically for you in this episode? Uh, in terms of character, I, I think probably to Paul. Um, I think that that's, um, to me, that's one of the real strengths of this episode is that it gives uh, to Paul um, uh a much more it gives people more meaningful things to do than we sometimes see in in episodes um and i think the um the scenes particularly between her and archer where she is going through sort of the caregiver routine of of uh, you know of dealing with with um his reactions to things um i think that um uh, that the actress uh, jillian blaylock does a really good job of putting all of that um 
history between them just under um, under the surface uh, during those scenes. And it's also an interesting just use of the Vulcans as well, just the concept of of a race that, you know, suppresses their emotions and approaches everything logically that um, often in Star Trek, that's kind of, uh, we're, we're shown that as a, as a, you know, sort of a double-edged sword kind of thing. Like it's good to be logical, but do we want to be this logical? But right. this is giving us a situation where, you know, in real life, if a person could suppress their emotions and approach things completely logically, this is the kind of situation where you'd want to be able to do that, where you you have to just give this person what they need, and it's probably going to be very hard on you. You've had to tell them a thousand times that that their world has exploded. Of course, that's, you know, that that's exaggerated in, in this story, but, you know, that you've had to give someone bad news um, repeatedly and repeatedly um, that in real life, that would be, uh, it, it would be good to be a Vulcan in, in that situation, even if she does also, I think, kind of get across that her Vulcan control is maybe slipping a bit because she's been in sustained contact with humans for so long. Yeah, the the real life case of Henry Moliason, they had to, you know, explain to him if he ever asked, you know, that his parents had died right. um, because, of course, he lived into his 80s. And it was just every day that that wasn't true until they until they told him. So um, I wonder where she got the orange juice from. <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. Apparently oranges survived. So that... or, yeah, right. <laughs> or maybe she had, was just keeping them special uh, for this big day that they're going to have. Uh, I also they, they managed to milk a little bit of comedy out of the uh, connection between Archer and T'Pol. Um, maybe <laughs> in, a, in a fun way and not harmful at all, um, subverting that caregiver uh, relationship, of course, when he asks her for the for the pillow and to turn off the lights at the end of the episode. Um, to leave the door open a crack, you know. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a little disrespectful to second in command, but I love her look at the end like, OK, I'll just I'll come back later and smother him. Yeah, exactly. That that moment, I feel like in a lot of other episodes, that moment would I would not care for that at all in this episode, I think, because um, just because of what I've seen already, I kind of have faith in uh in their what <laughs> faith in the heart i guess but right. faith in what they're doing um with that scene that they're how they're meaning for that to be taken whereas in a lot of other episodes i uh i feel like i would question their motives with <laughs> she like takes that. a lot of abuse yeah <laughs> yeah yeah especially when him and trip team up on her i i hate that Exactly. That's something that um, that's one of the things that has often made it hard for me to connect with with the series as a whole. Um, and I do as you get further into the series, there are scenes where they manage that better. Um, I think in this episode, actually, some of the sort of disagreements that she has with Trip, I think, are handled better than they are um, at, at other points in the series, even though I mean, there's a scene where he is just openly uh um, you know, uh, she's his captain at that point, and he's um, directly questioning um, what her course of action. I mean, that you know, I, yeah. Well, I he did want to kill some prisoners. That yeah. Yes, that's that's yeah. the part where he's like, yeah, just yeah. let's just airlock those guys. Exactly. Yeah, and there it there are moments in this episode too, yeah, where I I do think um, you know uh, it makes you wonder what kind of organization Starfleet is. Like, I don't know that you could get away with you know, directly questioning your superior uh, in front of other people like that, or even even not in front of other people. But right. um, no, I think it's handled a bit better here. Um, uh, but there are other episodes where, um, you know, it, it's uh, 
here's here's Trip shouting at Tapul for a while, and then we're going to have some sexual tension between them. Like it, it, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, um, but yeah, I, I think there are episodes like this one where they managed to find a, a better balance of that that relationship between the the three of them where i think the show was trying to sort of return to in some ways to the the kirk mccoy spock dynamic but of course change that uh dynamic in some ways but i i feel like early on that they did not uh, that didn't really succeed i don't think but there there are moments in in this episode where i think uh where i think that dynamic succeeds as when when Archer's making the suggestions that he's already made before. I think that's a really good showcase for the dynamic, what the dynamic can be between those three characters. Yeah, for sure. I also, I like at the end, he's, he's going to watch the movie on his tablet. So Trek still, still predicting the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's um, something that's really impressive about Star Trek, the way that it managed to predict tablets. I mean, it, it <laughs> assumed we could only put one book's worth or one movie on a single tablet. I guess. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is the Rosemary's Baby tablet. <laughs> they put it back in <laughs> the, the on, onboard blockbuster they've got after he's done with it, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who is a, a purveyor and examiner of pop culture, any significance at all to it being Rosemary's Baby or it's just a pick out of the reference hat? I did wonder about that. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I can't really find, I can't really think of a connection there. I can't really think of a, a through line why they specifically picked um, yeah. Rosemary's Baby. Um, because, I, yeah, I, I don't know that, um, that the idea of hard choices is necessarily something that's really, really stressed in the episode. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, uh, Tannis Root wasn't the cure for the uh, interspatial parasite. <laughs> Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, that's, that's a really tough choice. I, um, I, it, it's a tough choice between Picard and Cisco. Um, hmm. I think, um, I, oh, I mean, I think if it's who is my space dad, probably Picard. Who would I want to be my st- space dad? Probably Cisco. Okay. Yeah. um, uh, I just, again, associate Picard so much with that kind of calming, you know, uh, mature presence. Right. But, but I feel like Cisco is, you know, um, Cisco is the dad who would, who would fight for you kind of. An actual dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And that of course is a, a really good point about Cisco is he, he is one of the few real, one of the few, times in star trek where we really do see someone really being a dad yeah right exactly yeah. what that entails yeah well now that we've reached the end of the show you will receive a commission and the rank of ensign what department on the ship do you work in um i want to work in one of the departments where people wait for their chance to be called for exactly one episode of something like the the next generation with an incredibly specific um uh field so something sure. like uh in the big goodbye the uh i think early 20th century historian or something that they right, that right. they bring with them to the holodeck like what what's that guy been doing on the ship this whole time right just, yeah uh, just waiting for that so yeah i'd like to be something like the um you know uh late 20th century pop culture uh expert or something like that but sure the uh oh no we need a, a low g basket weaver for this uh, situation <laughs> and then we call down 
get that guy. The um, <laughs> I wonder if it's uh, all of Starfleet Academy is just a create your own major situation. <laughs> like you get the bit, you know how to run the uh, the L cars and to to fly the ship, and then you can just go off and just yeah, I'll do twenty uh, first century studies, you know, or um, the mating habits of uh, Talarians or something like that. Yeah, and the more specific you get, you know that there's less chance you'll ever be called upon, but when you are, there's pretty much a fifty fifty chance that you're going to die. So yes. you know it's you. You kind of like live out this calm, non-demanding life, and then go out in a blaze of glory. That doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Or you could try to pick something that, of course, could never ever harm you, and then you'd have a uh, Ghostbusters situation. You know, where you're like a marshmallowologist, and you get crushed by this Dave Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> well, uh, Anson Byrne, thank you for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, so they can find my blog at trekversustrek.com. That's uh, VS for Versus. Um, and um, on Twitter, Trek, uh, at Trek Trek. Um, and then uh, my personal blog as well is just my full name, Peter Aiden Byrne. Um, dot com, um, and that's Aiden with A-I-D-A-N. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me. Uh, thanks a lot. It's been great. And we're signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. So